Selwyn is Professor of Africana Studies at Wellesley College, uh, just outside of Boston. He's worked on a whole variety of subjects, on B.S. Naipaul, on the intellectual traditions in Trinidad and Tobago, and of course we're launching his book, which is listed up there, The Slave Master of Trinidad. And Christopher Petley is Professor of History at the University of Southampton. Uh, his most recent book is called White Fury, is a book that we launched in October, though it seems a little longer ago than that. Um, and so Christer will respond to uh, comments that Selwyn will make. We'll ask each of them to speak for about uh, 20 minutes or so, and then we will open the floor for discussions, and of course we will adjourn for a glass of wine. So, if we could, Selwyn, do you want to start? Thanks so much. <clears throat> family and the boys and all that stuff, so it's good that he was able to make it. Of course, there's sort of a, a William Burnley, I've titled it, in the Trinidad experience. In the 1850s, when I was growing up in Tagore, Trinidad, I used to see this large faded mansion in the orange rose savannah that had, that had seemed to have lost its glories. It stood there as a colossal on the magnificent expanse of land, which is one of the largest savannas in the country. It reminded me of the glorious days of the long time past, when, of course, it was probably the most important thing there. Of course, I couldn't have known that in that mansion lived a very important fellow called William Harding Burnley. As a young boy, we all knew of Orange Grove Shagrestley, a plantation that was central to the life of every person who lived in the district, Tigerico. At crop time, that is from January to May, of course, the whole village came to life because all of our lives revolved around that plantation. In fact, my entire family, my entire family grew up on the Orange Grove Sugar Estates. My great-great-grandfather, Jonathan Kajio, that's in fact taken from my grandfather's notebook. My entire, my entire family grew up on the Orange Grove Sugar Estates. My great-great-grandfather, Jonathan Kajio, was born in Tagrig on April 19, 1833, so my family goes directly back to slavery, uninterruptedly. Uh, my grandmother, Amelia Kajio, was born on August 1st, 1837, one year before apprenticeship ended and died on June 8, 1891. They have a copy of my grandfather's notebook. Of course, slaves couldn't read or write, but my grandfather could read, write. My grandmother couldn't. My grandfather, Robert James Cudger, you see in his own handwriting, was born in 1869. My uncle Hamilton was born in 1901. My brother Winston in 18, 1940. And they all worked on that Orange Grove Sugar Estate that was owned previously by William Harden Burnley. Although I worked on the estate for a very short period, I was saved from that by being a pupil teacher. Of course, 
So again, this is my, my, grand, my, Robert, my grandfather in Hamilton, Kajidustin Lordbrook, my grandfather, kept on all of, the, uh, of his children, or most of them. In fact, my father is not there. However, it was only when, in the late 1960s, when black power and the Marxist radicalism set in, that I began to understand that William Harden Burnley, the biggest slaveholder in the country, and probably the biggest resident slaveholder in the Anglophone Caribbean, was responsible for the shaping of the island's policy between 1810 and 1850, the year in which he died. William Burnley, of course, as I would learn later, was the son of a British gentleman, Harden Burnley, who went to Virginia in the 1960s to make his fortunes. When the Revolution War broke out in the, uh, in the United States in 1775, Burnley took the royal side to the great astonishment of all of his brothers. And of course, he was had to leave. Once he lost, losers can't stay around. However, his father came from his father, Harden Burnley, of course, was also a slaveholder. When his slave Betty, a Virginia wench, as he called her, escaped, he dutifully offered three pounds for her return in an adver advertisement in the Virginia Gazette of May 6, 1774. As the war raged on to lost, he fled to New York, where William was born in 1780. Of course, the war ended in 1783. Unable to go back to the South, in 1786, Burnley's family returned to London, where he became a successful businessman and a writer for Lloyd's and a director of the East India Company. In 1795, Harden enrolled at William at the Harris School for Boys, a school, of course, people like Byron had gone to about seven or so prime ministers came from. Interesting, when I try to get some work, some in, some, do some research on, on uh, William, it was the hardest thing to get into Harrow's. I thought racism was bad, but God, class is worse than anything else. This wouldn't let me in. It took me about six months and some not quite foul language uh, to get me uh, inside there. However, Bernie, of course, left Harrow in 1795. And of course, in 1798, he went to Trinidad to see what was there. Of course, a lot of those boys there who had some kind of connection uh, with um, the Caribbean. In 1802, he returned to the country and stayed there till the end of his life, of course, making tremendous visits all over. Within eight years during Trinidad, he, he of course, caused up with the authorities and was put in charge of the Widows and Orphans Fund, which he fleeced with impunity. In 1810, he returned to London, right around here, I suspect, married uh, Charlotte Brown, a union from which two children, William Frederick and Joseph Hume, were born. Incidentally, part of his fortune through William went to support the University of Glasgow. In fact, there's been a big uh, reparation thing being done between the University of Glasgow and UWI right now. In 1813, according to Plantation Slave Records, Burnley owned about 13 personal slaves. In 1813, the Orange Grove Estate which was owned by Edward Barry. Sorry. It was owned by Edward Barry, who was, of course, a slave owner. It consisted of probably 136 slaves. 
Barry died between 1819 and 1823. He brought the estate from Burnley sometime between 1819 and 1821, in which, of course, he built his massive mansion, which I start by showing another view of the same mansion. Of course, by time slaves, so he began with about 13 slaves. By 22, he had about, about 22 slaves. But when slavery ended in 1833, Burnley owned or controlled 14 sugar estates, of which Orange Grove, which the one I spoke about, which we grew up on, and Providence were the largest. He owned 980 slaves, for which, or which he received something like 40,000 pounds, or 37 million pounds today, for his slaves. Uh, of course, in today's dollars, it would be about 50, uh, 53 million US dollars was the most compensation that was paid to any of the Trinidad slave owners. As behooved this is prominence, Burnley did not get along with any of the, uh, of the governors there. He came there, he began to work, he was there from time, to, uh, from time Picton, in fact, was there the first governor, and went through about 12 different governors. While the governors came, he remained the central presence. In fact, he called them birds of paradise. As far as he was concerned, as I said, there were birds of paradise. He remained the one constant presence in the island. As fate would have it, though, Burnley's power and prestige in the island increased immensely. In 1815, when his sister, Maria, married Joseph Hume, uh, a member of the British Parliament, self-appointed guardian of the public purse, and a friend of the English working people against their masters. However... He easily did with all his beliefs when it came to his brother-in-law and, of course, his having access to the colonial office. Now, interestingly enough, uh, uh, Hume was a dear friend of David Ricardo, who, of course, in the developed labor theory of value in terms of Marxist theories on the three planks of Marxist uh, capital. And, of course, a friend of James Mill, a friend of John Stuart Mill, with whom he attended Monroe's Academy, Jeremy Bentham, Etc. In fact, when, uh, when Ricardo died, about 10 people went to the funeral, funeral, of which Joseph Hume was one of them, that is his father-in-law, which suggests that through those connections, Burnley had tremendous access to the colonial office, and of course some of his friends from Harrow, who in fact had become members of the British Parliament. So of course, slave uh, master though he was, he was a very influential presence in terms of of uh, the whole establishment. Of course, later on, he would meet, go on to meet people like on democracy, the Tocqueville and others. He met him both in New York, and of course, when he was finished writing on democracy, he went to France to meet him, etc. Of course, Burnley, of course, did not see Africans as his equals, even though he changed his tune when he sought to recruit African Americans in the post emancipation era. Like so many of his colleagues, he did not think that Africans could be civilized, that is to say, act like Europeans without the generosity or the generous use of the whip. In fact, he argued, he argued that Negroes were on our children of a larger growth, and the fear of punishment has now the effect which under the regulations proposed will require the application more of it. In point of fact, when in fact the women, when we come to that, where the colonel officer said, you shouldn't whip the woman, he was aghast. 
If you can't whip the women, how are you going to steal their towns? The refraining argued from whipping these men and women was tantamount to allowing them to retain their savage ways. The most reprehensive part of the regulations was the injunction that the planters cease whipping female slaves. Such a regulation, he says, such a regulation, he says, would be so monstrous and extraordinary that I hardly know how to approach the subject. The intention of such an order, we are told, is to elevate the females in the scale of society, whilst the men are left as they are were before, establishing, in fact, a decided superiority in favor of the women. All of a sudden, he's concerned about the men. They stop whipping the women. Of course, they will, of course, become people. Did you have a slide for that? Was that not the same thing that you... No, no, I just... Uh, this was the sort of slide. So monstrous, he says, and extraordinary, they stop that, 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 not whipping the woman. I hardly know how to approach the subject. The intention of such an order, we all told us to elevate the females in the scale of society, whilst the men are left as they were before establishing the fact that decided superiority. So as I said, he's now concerned about the men. In 1832, when it looked as though the British Parliament would call for the immediate abolition of slavery, Burnings for the planters went into a tizzy. To make matters worse, the Negroes refused to work, set fires to the plantations, and demonstrated total indifference to the destruction that was taking place around them. This action led the Portsmouth Gazette to, to, read, to say in the big newspaper, we learn with much uneasiness and regret that the slaves on the Concord estate events by their conduct during the conflagration a total warn of any desire to save the property of their respectable human owners. Owners. With Malcolm, you'd have agreed with him, agreed with slaves very much, that the damn thing burned. Of course, he recognized that those who took uh, uh, agency of their own actions were the ones who would be free. At any rate, they were, they were aghast that the slaves would not help the masters in outing the fires, etc. Once slavery ended, though, the formerly enslaved did everything to make a life for themselves. They withdrew their labor from the larger states, began to plant their own provision grounds, and reared their domestic animals. They bargained for wages, which of course increased the labor costs. When we talk a lot about the labors being scarce, suddenly, Black folks simply did what everyone else did. They simply began to bag in uh, for uh, their labor. This, of course, this, of course, urged the planters to no end. Now, this is taken, that last tree is that of the last tree we know was in Burnley's, the first shot I showed you. That tree was the only tree that's left that is in, of course, Burnley's estate. We call it a Kulipishtash tree. This shot is taken from where Burnley Estate would have been, and in the background is the Northern Range, where my people live and folks still live, right around that area. Uh, sorry. Many of the former enslaved then began to cultivate their estates, their yams, their plantains, their ground provisions, etc., and the fertile value of that's the north of the fertile value of the northern range. Even my grandparents had their own uh, uh, their parts of provision grounds just at the, the foothills of the northern range. It was here, this area, that my great grandparents and my grandfather planted their provision grounds. It was the area in which my people settled. 
In order to keep down the wages of the newly freed people and toward the efforts to become self-sufficient, Burnley undertook a trip to the United States in 1839 to recruit free blacks to work on the plantation. Uh, he, was, he, uh, he traveled from Maine to Virginia. He was fairly successful. However, the African Americans did not feel at home in Trinidad and stopped coming to the island. He would also advocate the bringing of several Leones to the work on the plantation. Uh, the Westerns, of course, at that time, several Leon slavery was still very, very acute. You know, the place there still was taking place around places like Rio Pedras and so on. Slavery was still there, but Burnley, of course, and of wanted to recruit uh, Africans there to work. In point of fact, the anti-slavery reporter. Uh, made a big thing about you want to be, reintroduce slavery now that it's almost finished. In July 1841, Burnley took his first Atlantic trip from Southampton, uh, England, to New York, <laughs> aboard the British Queen, one of the earliest steamships to ply the Atlantic. Of course, he loved to travel. He had about four or five ships which he just plied at the time. Of course, Burnley, of course, traveled back to Norfolk, Virginia, to visit his family, whom he said were amongst the first people in the, uh, in, the, in, in, the, uh, in the Virginia region, because the brothers who stayed did very well in the region. In fact, his uncle Zacharias uh, had become good friends with James Madison, President of the United States. He's also the godfather of Elizabeth, the sister of President Monroe, on May on November fifth, twenty on November fifth. 25th through 28th, Harden Burnley, Zachariah's son, sent two letters to James Madison informing him about his concerns about the meaning of the Ninth Amendment of the U.S. Cons uh, Constitution. According to Kurt Lash, quote-unquote, Madison agreed with Burnley's reasoning and appended his language in a letter he sent to George Washington on December 5th, 1789. My only point on both sides of the Atlantic, they were very influential. His brothers, his family on that side of the Atlantic became very close friends with Madison and others. In 1790, Harden Burnley was elected the Virginia Council of State, and they kept on. I won't go on, but the fact of the matter, they became very influential on that side of the Atlantic too. Of course, even, as I said, participating in the Ninth Amendment. Burnley, of course, returned to Trinidad, of course, he convened a meeting later on to begin to do the Agriculture Committee and talk about how we get more slaves. Meanwhile, though, as I'm coming up to the end, meanwhile, of course, the uh, former enslaved people were fighting for their freedoms in Trinidad. This is very important. This is the Trinidadian of 1850. And, of course, they begin to fight back by way of the Trinidadian. Of course, it's interesting to Gaddis. Of course, we begin to see the beginning of a tradition. And here, of course, you'd see that they use the newspaper to even do things. They even ran, as said, uh, Frederick Douglass and all the, was, the activities taking place in the United States. There was no email. There was no Instagram. But they were doing their thing. Of course... Uh, by the end of 1840, the black and colored people, they call themselves people of African descent, began to fight Burnley's rule. Of course, I'm looking now at the agency of people taking up their own destiny and fighting Burnley. It's not only about his doing his stuff. They created their own newspapers, the Trinidadian, of course, and began to attack Burnley vigorously. They even serialized Frederick Douglass's narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, published in 1845. They, bought, they, bought, they boldly announced, and this is what you see here. He said, we continue, we continue. This is the paper, this is the black folks, 
tell Mr. Burley that we are commenced in this number the insertion of the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, formerly a slave, and presently the proprietor and editor of the North Star. We invite the Honorable M. Burnley and others to begin its perusal at once. They may therein find summary remedy for the infatuated dislike of African materials. In other words, they became very active, of course, in naming their own tradition. Of course, the editor, George de Seuss, also became very important, but the fact here is that they were doing their own thing. By the end then of 1845, Burnley was losing his influence in the society. Even Lord Harris, the governor, and Charles Warner, the attorney general, began to object to his imperiousness. Yet he never seemed to miss a day at work in his life. He believed in his mission of developing the society, even though, he was the, even though it was at the expense of the local people. To the end, he believed that he was working in the best interest of the country, even though he only uh, was conscious of, the of his own interests. His end was sudden. At the end of November 1850, he attended the, la the last legislative section. He was the, the senior official member there, of course, even though he died at the end of uh, December 1850, of course, his business continued as per usual. Today, Burnley's remains lie in a massive mausoleum at the northern, the northern west center of what we call the Lapro Cemetery, Port of Spain. It stands neglected and alone, is named barely visible on the inner wall of the cemetery at the back of Tragridge Road in Port of Spain. At the head of what remains of the mausoleum engraved in bold letters is the model Resigam, which means, or in English means, I shall return. <laughs> I shall live again. In fact, when I saw that last, day, I said, oh, I hope he doesn't get up here and jump at me. Of course, today his name is but a faint echo in the Trinidad and Tobago memory. Uh, in the national memory, nobody knows probably whom he is, respect Burnley had a club there. Maybe, of course, the time has come to look upon the impact he had on the history of the region and, of course, the part he played in the transatlantic uh, uh, world of the time. Thank you so very much. so much Selwyn, that was really fascinating and thanks also for inviting me to comment on what is an absolutely fascinating book um, you've got a sense from what Selwyn's already talked about to do with Burnley a, a, a glimpse of, of what an interesting character, an interesting subject this is that Selwyn has been working on for some time now um, on the train up here I 
after having read the book, I, I was looking around online and I found you've, you've talked about this book in a number of different places. Uh, everyone I have to speak to give a different speech. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was looking around and you'd given something at the, the National Archive. Yes. And I think it was 2013 or something. Maybe the first time when I was here. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, as we both know from writing books about Caribbean individuals um, who've got a lot in common, yeah. um, it takes a long time. And so it's clear that you know this is a this is a book that's got a lot of research in it, and Selwyn's been working on it for a long time, and it's really come together, I think, very nicely. Um, what I want to do is to talk a little bit um, ab about the book itself and some of the questions that the book raises for me, um, and to try and put some of the topics of the book into into their context. Um, I've recently finished, as uh, was mentioned in the introduction, uh, a book not entirely dissimilar to the one that Selwyn has, has published. I've written a, a biography of a character called Simon Taylor, who was a, a big, wealthy Jamaican slaveholder. And um, one of the things then that's interesting to me in reading about Burnley is some of the ways in which these people are similar, but also some of the ways in which they're that they and their context are different. One of the things that occurred to me, looking at, at this particular biography that you've written, Selwyn, is that you had a problem that I didn't. Simon Taylor, 1740 to 1813, um, left behind a whole load of letters. So we've got lots to go on to find out about him. There's a personal archive, but you didn't have that with them. I think this is an amazing achievement to write a biography of a guy who, who hasn't, like Taylor, left letters, but the other character who we've sort of had a recent biography of, who falls in the same bracket as Burnley, a, a slaveholder, of course, is Thomas Thistlewood. And we know about Thistlewood because of these copious diaries that Thistlewood left behind. But you have none of this for Burnley. And so what we've got, I think, is a really interesting job of writing a biography of a subject with no personal archive, and you're, you're using to put together Burnley's life um, public documents, so his interventions right, in, in public debates, and let me just make sure I don't... I was told by Jean Besson that the first time she ever saw me speak, I went on for far too long. So I'm just setting my my, my clock here to make sure I. Students will go far. Oh, okay, yeah, you, you did say nice things as well. I should have mentioned. So I just want to make sure I don't. Um, so that's an interesting thing, and that might be something to explore. Selwyn, is it thinking about your methods, thinking about your sources, and, and the kind of biography that the sources then in, impose upon you. You know, you've got to write about Burnley using those those, those materials. But I also want to talk around um, four other themes. So one of them is Trinidad. Talk a little bit about Trinidad within the Caribbean and within the British Empire. I want to talk about um, Burnley as a, a member of the planter class, and particularly as a member of the local resident planter class. I'd like to talk about Burnley's white supremacism, something which came through in some of the evidence that you, you showed to us, Selwyn, in, in your talk. And then I want to finish with something that I have to say I think is a bit controversial about your book. You describe Burnley as a founding father in Trinidad. And that's interesting, I think. Um, and that's something that I'd like to explore as well. 
So, to begin with, with Trinidad, uh, William Hardin Burnley's biography is, is closely entwined with the history of the making of British colonised Trinidad. As we've heard, Burnley died in 1850, about half a century after the island was conquered by the British from the Spanish. And more than a century before Trinidad and Tobago got its independence from Britain. Trinidad is the longest settled island in the Caribbean, although officially it's not part of the Caribbean, it's part of the, geographically it's part of the, um, the, the American mainland, but politically it's, it's part of the Caribbean. And it's the longest settled part because it's first colonised by Native Americans moving northwards into the Caribbean region from the, the mainland several thousand years before Columbus stumbled upon it during his third voyage to the Americas in 1498. The island was then subsequently claimed by Spanish conquistadors, but it was really never much more than a backwater to their mainland Spanish imperial claims. But it was, and you can see from the map, still is, a large island, larger than any of the islands in the Eastern Caribbean, and it's ideally suited for the sort of commercial agriculture that Burnley gets involved in, principally the raising of sugar. Its rapid development into the sort of colony that William Burnley came to know began not long before the British arrived. Encouraged by the Spanish, new settlers, many of them from the French Caribbean, began to establish sugar estates as well as coffee and cotton plantations in Trinidad from around the 1780s. And then, particularly, this increased during the years of the French Revolution. Many of these new slaveholders were free people of colour. But by by far the largest group of of newcomers to the island in this period are enslaved Africans, forced migrants, trafficked across the Atlantic to work on these these burgeoning estates and, and plantations on the island. So by the time that the British conquered the island from Spain in 1797... Um, an event that comes quickly after the Spanish allied with the French against the British during the French Revolutionary Wars. By the time that the British conquer the island, um, we see a place in uh, a period of, uh, uh, of flux and of, of rapid change, the, the, the quick development of a plantation sector and um, the, the, the arrival of, of large numbers of migrants, particularly slaves, and so a six-fold increase in population over two decades. So the Spanish invade in 1797, and the island is formally ceded to Britain in 1802. Now, I think all of that's important to our understanding of the colonial world that... He must have been 18 years old, Burnley, when he arrived in Trinidad in 1798. So the young man, straight out of public school, arrives there in 1798, and he encounters this world, um, and he decides he's going to come back. Um, you say in another talk that he arrived in 98, likes what he sees, and then decides he's going to come back and settle. So this is interesting. I mean, Trinidad is a, is a new colony, within the British Caribbean Empire. It's a multi-ethnic and multilingual uh, society, and it represents a new frontier for sugar cultivation. And interestingly, 
the British government didn't offer the island the British constitution, which basically means that they didn't offer to Trinidad the um, island assemblies that existed in the, in the older colonies, places like Jamaica and Barbados. They've got their own legislatures, just like you've got in this period before the American Revolution on the American mainland. So the British government decided not to do that in Trinidad. And one of the reasons for that is that British colonial policy in this period is changing. And there's a, a drive towards a more centralised view of empire, an idea that empire should be governed more rigorously from the centre and less power devolved to local elites on the periphery. But also Trinidad is the kind of society where... Um, the British government are particularly keen to make sure that that sort of central authority is maintained because this is a kind of society that is very, very different to a lot of the other colonies, um, particularly on the American mainland, places like Canada, um, but also elsewhere in the Caribbean. You've got a, this really significant mix of people, French-speaking, Spanish-speaking, free people of colour, a large proportion of this population. And in Trinidad, in fact, lots of Native Americans still um, by the time that the British arrived. So it doesn't get the, um, the British constitution. And then subsequently, the island becomes a really important site for what some scholars have described as exploratory experiments as the British begin to think about uh, the transition away from slavery towards free labour. Um, even before the abolition of the slave trade, Trinidad is being thought of as a place where uh, experiments might be made with new types of labour. So one of the things that interests me, Selwyn, about Burnley in Trinidad is why does he like what he sees there? What does he, what does he um, see in this, in this place in terms of its potential? Because I'd imagine that if you arrive in a place like this in 1798, there are all sorts of possible ways that the, the place can go. And I guess, in a way, he takes a gamble on it. He takes a gamble, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's... I mean, I'll, I'll talk about this. There was a great big English population there, an Irish population. Yeah. He knows the ones, he knows some of the people who went to school with. So yeah. they may have told him about... I mean, okay. the first Chief Justice, for example, yeah. was from uh, Harrow. They talked a lot, a lot of West Indians who were there at Harrow at the time. So he must have probably gotten something yeah. and encouraged to come down. So and one of the things that Seymour Drescher says about Trinidad, which I think has got to be true, is that when, when, um, when Burnley arrives, Trinidad's probably in the kind of state that Jamaica and San Domingue are in the 1730s. Potentially, if the African slave trade is kept open, this place is the new frontier for sugar in the Caribbean. Now, as it happens, it doesn't work like that in Trinidad. And um, one of the things I find fascinating about about your book and about your discussion of Burnley is that in some ways he makes his money in a slightly different way to other planters, those previous generations of planters in, for example, Jamaica, who settled in the middle of the 18th century. Burnley belongs to what Nicholas Draper has called a new generation of planters, a new planter class, rising in Trinidad and Guyana in the early 19th century. And one of the things that's significant about that period in those two places is that these are new frontiers for sugar cultivation. There is a lot of potential for um, entrepreneurs to make money from sugar and from slavery 
and even after slavery from the plantations in, in those areas. But um, Burnley, as we've heard, makes money from fleecing widows and orphans. It also seems to me that he almost sort of um, goes for the short sell on, uh, on, the, on plantation agriculture in Trinidad. You, you, you make the point that he buys up a lot of this property in the 1820s when a lot of the local proprietors get scared of the prospect of abolition. Um, that the British are going to end slavery, and so they sell their estates cheap, and Burnley buys them. So this is a kind of an opportunist, and I'm kind of interested. Maybe we can't really know. He defines himself as a capitalist, by the way. But yeah. <laughs> well, that's those capitalists synonymous. Perhaps. I am. Yes. <laughs> um, but, so he takes his chances, and he sees these opportunities, and I'm kind of interested in what you think. You know, does he have a plan when he goes that he sticks to, or does he actually sort of roll with things as they develop and see new opportunities that perhaps he wouldn't have seen when he first arrived in, in 1798 that, that begin to emerge in that early uh, 19th century period up until emancipation. And of course he makes a hell of a lot of money through slave compensation. One of the points that Selwyn makes in this book is that this guy profits whether slavery exists or not. And uh, actually for, for him, you know, compensation is a big source of, of his wealth. He becomes extremely rich. And Selwyn, in his book, notes that soon after turning 40, in 1821, he built this huge mansion that you saw, not far from the government's, governor's own mansion um, at Orange Grove. And it's a site that features heavily in the book, and in some ways it's the beginning for the book, because, of course, it's the place where you and your family yeah. grew up. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's intriguing about Orange Grove is that it becomes almost like an alternative site of power in the colony to the governor's mansion. Um, and it seems that Burnley was aware of this. I mean, when he built this place, he made sure that it had one more window than the governor's mansion, just to make a point. One more window, slightly more impressive than, than, the, than the governor's. And, and as, as the book tells you, he, he has got plenty of... Um, um, uh, of conflict goes on between him and various uh, various governments. So this becomes a local um, site of power for the white elite. Um, but I'm quite interested by why Burnley stays, because one of the things we know about this new planter class from th that's investing in Trinidad and that's investing in uh, British Guyana is that oftentimes these capitalists sunk their money into the estates but then chose to live elsewhere. But Burnley makes different decisions. He decides to stay. And in, in some ways, I wonder whether being on the ground for him is one of the ways in which he's able to respond quickly to local situations and make the money that he does. Um, so that's something I think that's, um, that's interesting to think about. Um, and one of the things, as well as that, to do with compensation is how that money and the buoyancy and the potential of the local economy in Trinidad in particular, as distinct from, say, Jamaica, where there's economic decline in this period, whether that makes this particular planter class, Burnley's planter class, very, very different to the, the Jamaican planters. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a group that is still on the rise in the 1830s at a time when these, these other groups are, 
in decline. And one of the ways that we see this is that they are able to negotiate for themselves, and Burnley is at the heart of this, a better deal through compensation in 1833 than the planters elsewhere in the Caribbean. Burnley was a white supremacist, and Selwyn's book shows this. Um, His own comments make it clear. And I think it's one of the constants in Burnley's political life. Uh, I'm pretty sure that he must have had those kinds of ideas when he visited for the first time in 1798. Because why else do you like what you see in Trinidad and go back to to settle unless you've got very firmly held ideas about slavery and, and race? Um, Just to ask, what do you mean by white supremacy, and why was his thinking different from anybody, any other white person in that era? Because, I mean, for me, everybody in that time would have been a white supremacist. Sure. So I'm just curious about how you make him distinctive from anybody else who's white in that time. Okay. Largely. Should we talk about that for, in questions? I mean, I'm happy to talk about that now if you want. Maybe sure. you want to make, um, yeah? yeah, just to keep the flow going. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Chair? Yes, yeah. carry on and we'll get back. So I think he brought those very firm ideas. Certainly he's not a missionary or an abolitionist. He's not going to Trinidad in order to try to convert enslaved people to Christianity or with a, any kind of emancipatory ideals. He's going to make money from sugar and slavery. So a particular variety of white supremacy, which is pro-slavery and seeking to make Um, make his fortune through this institution. And he articulates this throughout his career. He warns against the danger of emancipation. He sees Africans, as Selwyn's evidence shows, as being incapable of of, of being free, effectively. Um, And it also goes through into the period after emancipation and and continues to shape his, uh, his politics. So he sees enslaved people to, quote, him as ignorant Negroes, and he advocates, for instance, that um, it should be Europeans who are imported to do the the skilled work on on sugar estates. So this certainly informs his ideas about about the plantations, about labor, also about how Trinidad should be governed. This, I think, is interesting because in some ways his politics differ throughout his career. So in the period up until emancipation, in this particular imperial site where the British government has decided not to give the British constitution, to rule it as a crown colony, Burnley is one of the most vocal people in the colony saying that white settlers should have more say in what's going on. So he's an advocate then for colonial autonomy, more power to the locality, but within the confines of the white elite. Then he changes his tune after emancipation. Um, He's absolutely averse to any notion that power should be devolved to to Trinidad and to the local population. The reason, of course, is that the the discussion about that has changed after emancipation. And and that possibility of devolved power to, to Trinidad would now almost certainly include members at least of the... Uh, of the mixed-race middle classes. And he's absolutely adamant that it should be whites and white power that is, that is most, uh, um, most prevalent in, in Trinidad. 
So this, I think, is a, is a constant theme of his, even though he changes his tune on some, uh, on some of the other um, um, political issues of his time. So finally then, to, as I wrap up, this idea of Bernie as a founding father. Um, this I understand from one of the other talks you've given that gave rise to a, a dispute between you and your brother. You, you, you describe Burnley as a founding father and you oh, say something books. about, oh, my brother didn't like that. I love Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Um, I, I find this an interesting idea. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's a line that you've got at the end of the, the introduction. Um, Burnley played a seminal role in the early history of Trinidad and Tobago, serving as the founding father. And one of the things that, um, that you do with the book is you, you make a comparison at the beginning between Burnley and Dr. Eric Williams, the renowned historian who became the first Prime Minister of Trinidad and Tobago in 1962 um, and died in, in 1981. In some ways, for me, it's, it's, more diffi it's difficult to think of two people more dissimilar than, than these two, two characters. Um, but maybe in some ways, both of them are founding fathers of the modern Caribbean, albeit in very distinctive kinds of ways. Um, Vincent Brown, in his brilliant book, The Reaper's Garden, has presented the character who I've recently written about, Simon Taylor, as a sort of founding father of Jamaica. But I think Vincent Brown is doing that as a deliberately ironic manoeuvre. Like Burnley, Taylor had a vision of his Caribbean island that seems to stand in almost complete contrast to the professed ideals of modern nationalists like Williams. And Taylor, and I think this is probably true of Burnley in Trinidad, he never really identified as a Jamaican. He saw himself resolutely as British, um, as part of a greater Britain perhaps, and saw a firm and unbreakable connection between Britishness and whiteness. I think that's probably true. It'd be interesting to hear, Selwyn, what you think about, about Burnley too. He's interested in extracting profit from Trinidad, and he was terrified of the black majority. In fact, his responses to the 1849 labour dispute echo those of previous generations of white planters. Again and again, we see the spectre of Haiti, which, of course, comes up in Jamaica a few years later during the Morant Bay rebellion. This is the thing that most terrifies him. The, the, the continuation of the sorts of things that you were talking about, of, of black rebellion, black agency, and the potential for real, genuine um, self-government by the people of the Caribbean in a place like Haiti. Um, so it's hard in some ways to see someone like that as a founding father, other than because he helped to lay many of the foundational contradictions and problems with which Williams and other modern Trinidadians have to contend. So I want to finish with a very colourful and I think interesting quote about Burnley, which offers a very different kind of view of, of him than perhaps he would have had of him himself. And this comes um, from a free, uh, from a a mixed-race Trinidadian newspaper editor 
George de Seuss, uh, someone who, whose name I now know how to pronounce, <laughs> thanks to your presentation. <laughs> so this is what George de Seuss said about, uh, about Burnley uh, in 1850. He said that he could think strongly and express himself clearly, but his heart is not at home. What Mr. Burnley's legislative sayings and doings, um, Mr. Burnley's legislative sayings and doings are a violence done to justice and an outrage against Christianity and humanity. Without doing him any wrong, we may style him a glib-tongued, smooth-faced, cold-blooded tyrant who cares nothing for the sufferings of his fellows, provided his own coffers are being filled. Thank you.